surprised at the invitation uh, to come and to speak because I consider my own journey to be somewhat uh, difficult for myself but humdrum to be told um, and so I'm grateful to be here the topic of my or the title of my talk this evening excuse me is there and back again a reverts tale and for any of you who happen to be Tolkien fans you understand the reference that is the secondary title of the Hobbit there and back again, a hobbit's tale. Now, whereas Bilbo went on his journey and came back a different hobbit, I went on my journey and came back looking like a hobbit. <laughs> um, so, but that's another issue for another day. I'd like to begin uh, with prayer, if I might. And in my tradition, when I say the Lord be with you, you respond with? And also with you. That works. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Let us pray. O God of unchangeable power and eternal light, look favorably on your whole church, that wonderful and sacred mystery. By the effectual working of your providence, carry out in tranquility the plan of salvation. Let the whole world see and know the things which were cast down being raised up, the things which had grown old are being made new, and that all things are being brought to their perfection by him through whom all things were made. Your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. As Pastor Zach mentioned, I had this rather interesting journey that began many, many years ago. And, of course, as we're talking about my journey from the Orthodox Church back to here, it's a journey that doesn't just begin when I converted to Orthodoxy. It begins a long time before that. And the questions that I have been asked by many, many people over the course of the last year since I moved back to Cincinnati and took up my post at Trinity was not, why did you decide to come back? I get that far less. What I get far more is what makes evangelical people convert to orthodoxy? What is it that makes us want to do this? And this is a very, very important question to ask because for those of us in this class, or in this room, excuse me, I'm used to my Sunday school class and saying class. For those of us in this room who are of a reformed persuasion, it's important because in my graduating class from seminary, when I graduated in 2017, half of my class were converts from evangelicalism. And of those, upwards between half and three quarters of them are ex-reformed including one classmate of mine who was a former PCA pastor. Okay, this is a question that is not out there in the ether for evangelicals with no sense of their history. This is something that is happening in our midst, in our Reformed midst. And each, of course, each Reformed church, each Reformed denomination has its own problems. As for me, in the Anglican world, we have our own problems that lead people that way. They might be different for you. But I think for me, backing it up to my own story, my own journey, and showing you the trajectory early on that led me to where I went is very important. Okay? So, 
All that said, I want to begin with a scripture passage that I think is pertinent for the discussion. If you have your Bibles in front of you, which I hope you do, if you don't, they're on your phone, I'm sure, open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. You probably already know where I'm going with this. Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another, go another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. These words, as I read them now, and I look back on my life over the last 10 to 15 years, brings difficulty for me. Because I realized that for a decade of my life, I am the man that Paul was writing this to. I am the man who turned aside to a different gospel. I am the man who turned aside from that which was handed to me to something flashier. And it all begins, when I go back, I was raised across the river in northern Kentucky on a farm out in the middle of nowhere, a little Southern Baptist kid, Southern Baptist deacons on both grandparents. It's great, except they put me to sleep every Sunday <laughs> as a kid. And when I became closer to my teens, 11 or 12, my parents, who were decidedly not traditional church people, they're still not, I'm trying to work on them that way, but it's not happening, decided that we were going to move into a charismatic church. And so I spent my teens in an Assembly of God church. Now, this isn't just the Assemblies of God. This is the Assemblies of God in the 90s, okay? Brownsville Revival, Toronto Blessing. For those of you who are around, you know what I'm talking about. For those of you who weren't, ask somebody older than you, and they'll tell you. Gold dust falling from the ceiling, the whole shebang, right? I was part of that world where the youth group would go to Brownsville Revival every summer and come back, and the first thing they would want to do was burn all their secular CDs. I got into trouble one year in youth group because I couldn't, being a musician, I couldn't stand to see music destroyed. So the first youth group back, when they came back from their trip, I waited at the door of the church with a basket with a sign on it that said, donate free CDs here. I did not endear myself to the youth group pastor that time, but that's okay. If you know me, you know I've spent my ministry getting in trouble. That's all right. But in any case, that was the world I lived in. And I started in ministry, music and youth ministry, when I was 14 years old in that environment. As I got closer to graduating high school, and after I did graduate high school, I was leading worship more and more and more. And it was becoming apparent to me that this was probably going to be the trajectory of my life for some time to come. And I was asked right after I graduated high school to lead worship for a revival. 
a week-long revival. How many of you all have ever had the chance to go to a week-long Pentecostal revival? If you ever get the opportunity, pass on that. <laughs> okay? <clears throat> but I remember one night in particular, it was the third or fourth night of the revival. Would have been Wednesday or Thursday evening when I was asked to lead. It went on for so long that the musicians were all, we couldn't play anymore. We were all tired. And the altar call was going on and on and on. And so they put a CD on and gave us a break. And so we went and sat in the back of the church. And I picked up my Bible, this nice new leather-bound NIV that they gave me as a graduation gift. And I thought to myself, you know, I've been in the church my whole life. I probably ought to read this thing. So I thought to myself, where should I begin? And I realized that in that particular church situation, on any given service, you could flip a coin, and it was either going to be about Acts 2, Pentecost, or something to do with end-time prophecy. So I figured Acts 2 was an easier place to begin. <laughs> so I opened up my Bible to Acts 2, and I remember clear as a bell, sitting in the back of the church with my Bible open like this, reading, and looking up at what was happening in the church up front, and thinking, no... No, no, peace, I'm out, <laughs> right? Because the thought, I remember this as clear as a bell, because this was what sent me on the trajectory that I would go down years later. The thought that occurred to me that clicked in my 18-year-old head was, is this what the early church was really like? And I remember thinking, there's no way, because this would not have caught on. Maybe I was... A bit bigoted, but the question still stands. <laughs> and so I began asking questions about church history. And so the church history bug bit me at about 18. But instead of doing what I should have done, which was go back to the sources, finish reading the Bible, and go from there on, I started where I was and started working chronologically backwards. So I went to work, I left the Assemblies of God, and I went to work for, the Southern, for a Southern Baptist congregation. And I was there for a time. And I was offered a position not long after that as the worship director at College Hill Presbyterian. And I was there for two and a half years. Now College Hill, my time at College Hill was a wonderful experience for a couple of reasons. One, lovely people in that congregation. Wonderful people there. Beautiful historical building. <clears throat> but something, there were two things that were introduced to me at College Hill that would change everything for me. The first was the writings and lectures of a former pastor at College Hill who still loomed in the air, a man by the name of R.C. Sproul. I had no idea who this guy was. I walked in, a cocky Baptist kid, musician, and somebody handed me a CD, for you young kids, that's what music was on in the 90s, right? They handed me a CD with some of the lectures from R.C. Sproul. And I was hooked from that moment on. The next thing that happened was that I was introduced to liturgy. This is the Book of Common Prayer. R.C. taught me, R.C. Sproul taught me, that theology was not just a thing for stuffy, stuffed shirt academics 
in tweed, coll in tweed suit jackets and leather you know, elbows. No offense, Brandon. <laughs> but rather was something that could come alive, something that could energize you. I had never, when I, when I finally watched videos of RC, I never saw someone who taught theology with vigor and fire, that it was something that lived and breathed and moved and that gave a deeper love for God. And that was very attractive to me. And I latched on to it. And I experienced liturgy for the first time. I grew up being told that liturgy is what happened in the Middle Ages when people were illiterate. That that was the result, was liturgy. Repetitive services over and over again so that people could memorize them and not have to worry about reading something. When I realized that historically that didn't hold water, that opened a whole new world. I won't start singing, I promise. But it opened whole new possibilities. Beautiful possibilities. And among those, for me, was the reality that I could come to church, I could come to the Lord's Day, and if I didn't come feeling like I wanted to pray, if I didn't come feeling like I was connected with God, I could come into the church and lean back on the liturgy and let the liturgy pray and carry me along. That it wasn't dependent upon me and what I brought to the table, but rather what I brought was simply adding to the grand chorus of the church being offered to God using prayers and hymns that had been offered by the church for centuries. And so this trifecta of history, theology, and liturgy began leading me in a very interesting direction. A friend of mine, as I've already mentioned, said to me, if you love liturgy, you need a copy of the Book of Common Prayer. I said, what in the world is that? And so he handed me a copy of the 1979 prayer book of the Episcopal Church. And I devoured it, fell in love with it, and I said, I need to worship in a church that prays like this. Only problem was, even as an early 20-something, when I opened up the prayer book and I saw published by the Episcopal Church USA, I knew that wasn't an option for various reasons. If any of you know about the troubles of the Anglican Communion in the last half century, you'll understand why that wasn't an option. I read just this week that in the Mother Church, the Church of England, yet another lesbian bishop has been appointed. God help us all. And so even with my limited knowledge, I knew I couldn't do that. And so another friend called and said, you know, my wife was in a conservative Anglican group. You should look into them. And so after not too long, I found myself involved in the Anglican mission in America, or the Anglican mission in America, or Anglican mission to the Americas. They've changed their name about three times. But what makes them special, and several other groups, is that they were missionary groups sent to this country from countries that we used to send missionaries to. Specifically, the group that I was in was under the bishops of Rwanda. 
There were bishops from Rwanda and Kenya, Nigeria, Singapore, who were sending clergy here to missionize the country that used to missionize them. Think about that for a second. That should tell you something. But that was where I found myself, and my time there was beautiful. I was hooked up with this wonderful, newly ordained presbyter who had moved to Covington to plant a church, and I hooked up with him. And our first communion service was in his living room with me, with my guitar, his wife, and their two sons, which are now the age that my sons are now, in attendance. And it was a beautiful time. I was leading worship at Madeira Silverwood Presbyterian at that point on Sunday mornings. And then I would rush from Kenwood to Covington to have church at St. Barnabas. And it was a beautiful, beautiful time. And I was learning a lot. And I was reading for the first time the church fathers. I finally made my way historically back there. But there was a, a little thorn, a little thorn that kept working its way in. And that thorn was in the form of liberalism. See, the, AC, the AMIA, the Anglican Mission, was absorbed into the newly formed Anglican Church in North America, of which I technically, though not officially, technically still belong now because the REC is a sub-jurisdiction of the ACNA. But when the ACNA was formed, some of the problems of the Episcopal Church were grandfathered in, like women's ordination, for example, or doctrinal pluralism, meaning that within the same camp, there's a wide variety of theological opinions that are possible. You can have Anglo-Reformed, like me, and Anglo-Catholics who are praying the rosary, and Anglo-Charismatics, and Anglo-Vineyardites, and they all come together at the table together. A little bit contradictory and difficult to wrap our minds around, but that was and still is the place. The other one was the PC, the PC USA when I was working at Madeira. While I was working for, the, for them, the motion came down from on high that marital fidelity would no longer be required of their clergy. And I thought to myself, I know where this is going. And what happened for me, and this is, I think, point one, if I can write this in great big bold letters as to why people convert to orthodoxy, here's a big one, okay? I, as a conservative 20-something, allowed conservatism as a concept to become an idol. I wanted to find where I, I wanted to find a place where I would not find women's ordination, where I would not find the LGBTQ uh, plus ad infinitum <laughs> pushed. That's what I wanted. And the truth of the gospel, I am sorry to say, began to take a backseat. And a friend of mine, God love him, was a groomsman in my wedding, said to me one day, have you considered the Orthodox Church? And I said, you mean that place where all the Russians go? <laughs> and he shrugged and said, well, you know, Greeks too. 
So I said, no, I have not given that any thought. Up to that point, my only exposure to Eastern Orthodoxy was the wedding scene in Bram Stoker's Dracula. Do you guys remember? My big fat Greek wedding hadn't come out yet. <laughs> Although, as a funny aside, my parents told me, because I was married in the Orthodox Church, my parents told me that they watched my big fat Greek wedding repeatedly to prepare for my wedding. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> but so he said, have you considered the Orthodox Church? And I said, no. But I went and visited. And the first time I went, I went to an Antiochian church, what used to be called the Syrian church. And I walked in the door and I sat through two hours of Arabic, including the sermon in Arabic, with the occasional, okay? <laughs> I'm not kidding. Arabic, 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 okay? And I'm like, no, not okay. <laughs> I, not Arab, don't understand. But there was still something about it that was that felt anchored to me. And so the next weekend I visited the Orthodox Church in Norwood, which is in an, which is in an old Episcopal church building, beautiful building. And being in a very distraught place in my life, struggling with all of these things that I was encountering, the people there at Christ the Savior gave me a home. They loved on me. And the liturgy was deep and ancient. And there was something about it that allowed me to completely lose myself and not worry about what might be said because I knew that what is said from their teachings in the service was going to be consistent with what they taught elsewhere. And so I allowed myself to be lost in it. And that's point two. Point two, the first is making conservatism an idol. Point two is the perception of beauty and ancientness. The perception of beauty or the perception of historicity that allows you to get sucked in. And you begin to hear as you open up yourself to it. You begin to hear what they say about themselves. We hear these things. When you go to catechism class, you're told, we are the original church that Jesus Christ founded. We have apostolic succession in our bishops. We are in line with the fathers. We're the church of the councils. All of these things. And without diving into it, you see everything. And it's like, yes, this is otherworldly. It's ancient. That has to be right. And so you give yourself to it, as I did. A couple of years went by in the Orthodox Church. I got married. I quit my job leading worship. I went from leading worship at a church doing what I love to do. And in order to become Orthodox, I quit my job. And I went and got a job working third shift at Meyer as a cashier in Oakley. And I did that for a long time. And for a while, I discerned my path because I thought that in order to be a priest in the Orthodox Church, as I was already, I had been in ministry for a long time and I thought originally that was where I was going to continue. 
But I put all that on hold because I thought that in order to be a priest in the Orthodox Church, you had to be Greek or Russian or something along those lines. And I discussed my vocation with my parish priest, who was a lovely man. And he said, oh, no, no, no. Come on in. Wait a couple of years. We'll send you to seminary. And that's what happened. I enrolled in St. Tikhon's Orthodox Theological Seminary, and I began there in 2013. I went to seminary for four years because I had to finish my undergraduate. Because uh, also as a foolish 20-something, I thought I was going to be a rock star, so I dropped out of college uh, and went on the road with a Christian rock band. We can see how that ended up. I am to date not a rock star, um, although we'll see how this talk goes. Um, but I was, so I was in seminary for four years. St. <coughs> Tikhon's seminary is attached to the oldest Orthodox monastery in North America. It's in South Canaan, Pennsylvania. It's literally on a mountaintop in the Poconos. It is a beautiful, beautiful, picturesque place. And when St. Tikhon of Moscow formed the monastery and seminary, it is said that he chose that place because it reminded him of his, na of his native Siberia. That should tell you something. <laughs> Our first winter there was 30 below zero. We had pipes bursting all over the house. I had no idea what I was in for. But we were there for four long years, attached to the monastery. All of our services were in the monastery. And we lived very much in the rhythm of the monastic world. And if you know anything about orthodoxy, you will know that the heart of orthodoxy is monasticism and mysticism. Monasticism and mysticism. Because for them, this is not sufficient. This is not sufficient. In fact, in the Orthodox Church, there is not even the tradition and scripture dichotomy that we usually talk about as having in Rome. We, on the Reformed end of things, when we look at Rome, we say, Scripture and tradition over there. But in the Orthodox Church, there is only tradition. Scripture is simply a part of the tradition. And it must be interpreted in light of all the other parts of tradition. Now, what are those parts of tradition, you may ask? The Church Fathers, not surprisingly the canons of the seven ecumenical councils. Now, you, you may say to me, okay, the doctrinal decrees of the seven councils, that's cool, we get that. We can get on board with most of that. Maybe not number seven, which is about icons. But at least one through six, maybe we can get on board with. Okay? But I'm talking about the canons, the canon law. Okay? Those are seen largely as infallible. Now here's the problem. When you get into canon law, you begin to see things about required clerical celibacy for bishops. You begin to see absurd things like a bishop can't own a large dog. I'm not making this up. There's a canon law that says a bishop can't own a large dog. Okay? You really get into the weeds. So, scripture, the fathers, the decrees and the canons of the seven councils, the hymnography of the church, the iconography of the church, 
And finally, and the last one, I'm not making this up, church architecture. These are all seen as part of one infallible whole. One infallible whole, of which Scripture is only a part. And so you really soak all of this in when you're living in the monastery and going to services day after day after day after day. Especially for me, the married students typically didn't go home in the summer times when classes weren't in session, so we stayed. And so for me, this was a complete four-year journey with no break. And it was over the course of this time that I began to butt up against certain things that were very difficult for me. The first thing was being a church history nerd. I looked so forward to my first church history class. I still love my professor. He was my thesis advisor. And I've never seen someone so excitable in all my life. This is a man who had converted to orthodoxy while being a student and then teaching at Oral Roberts University. My bishop in the Orthodox Church had the exact same story. Both of them were Oral Roberts graduates, former charismatics who became Orthodox while at Oral Roberts. And this man would get so excited talking about church history that he would trip over desks and fall over his shoes, my kind of guy. Wonderful guy. But I was so deeply disheartened by what happened in my first semester of church history. Because we go in with our minds, I'm going to be a priest in the Orthodox Church, the unchanged Church of Jesus Christ. And then I get one semester in and I'm like, oh wait, you mean the church isn't unchanged? Oh no, that's a problem. You begin to see that there were rather extensive changes. One of the most important, and I've talked about this before, the Orthodox Church denies the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. They deny that Jesus received in himself on the cross the penalty for the sins of his people and that the wrath of God was poured out upon him in our place. They deny that doctrine. And not only do they deny it, they, they consider it to be heresy. Now. But here's the problem. The church fathers that they hold up as infallible taught it. The church fathers taught penal substitution. The first great articulation of penal substitutionary atonement came from St. John Chrysostom, who said that the death of Christ and the passion of Christ is like a man who is ready to go to the gallows, and the prince comes down, takes his rags, pushes him out of the cell, and goes to the gallows for him. Here's the thing. The liturgy that the Orthodox Church celebrates every week is the divine liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. The man whose liturgy they celebrate gave the first great articulation of penal substitutionary atonement theory. He taught that Christ took the penalty of our sins. 
And yet the modern Orthodox Church condemns that as heresy. There was a man in the 17th century, the early 17th century, late 16th century, early 17th century, named Cyril Lucaris. Cyril Lucaris was the patriarch of Constantinople, the Orthodox patriarch of Constantinople. This is during the Turkish period. Now, during the Turkish period, all of the seminaries were closed in the East. And so, with no other choice, the bishops would send their young men to the West to be educated. Young Cyril was sent to be taught in Holland and in the Netherlands. What theology do you think he picked up there? I'll give you a hint. We're sitting in it. He was educated Dutch Reformed. And he took that theology back with him to Constantinople. And he became known to us in history as the Protestant patriarch. And he began instituting what he had learned and the truths of, this, of the gospel that he had learned. And as he did so, he began to raise the eyebrows and the mire, or the ire, excuse me, of his fellow bishops. And so it should not be surprising to us that one morning they found Cyril floating in the Bosphorus. He had been strangled and thrown into the river for teaching the gospel to the Orthodox. The things that we see and we consider to be biblical, they consider to be heresy. And as I began to butt up against the reality that the church is not unchanged, either theologically or liturgically, they're fond of saying that the liturgy that they celebrate has been celebrated since the very beginning, since the apostolic times, when in reality, the universal practice of celebrating the liturgy of John Chrysostom is less than 500 years old. Every local church had their own liturgy. In the West, there was a liturgy of Rome, the liturgy of St. Ambrose of Milan, the Mozarabic Rite in Spain, the York Rite, and the, and the Rite of Salisbury in England. In the East, there was the Rite of Constantinople. There was the Rite of Alexandria, which the Coptic Church still celebrates. There was the Syriac Rite. In fact, every local place had their own liturgical expression. And it wasn't until the Ottoman period, when the Ottomans made the Patriarch of Constantinople the head of the Eastern Church, that they imposed the liturgy of John Chrysostom on the whole church, much in the same way that the papacy, when it had covered the whole Western Church, put down the Latin Mass as the norm of Rome all over the West. And so we see that this claim that the liturgy is unchanged and the church is unchanged liturgically and theologically is not a claim that can stand up to even the lightest scrutiny. After I graduated from seminary and I began asking all kinds of questions that I wasn't allowed to ask while I was in seminary, my, just as a humorous aside, I got into a lot of trouble with my seminary dean. My very last assignment in seminary was for canon law. And we, asked, they, we were asked to write a paper about canon law, what we thought we could do to improve the lot of orthodoxy in America. And my paper was on the need to reinstitute married bishops. 
you can imagine the grade that I got. Okay? But I graduated in 2017. Wrote my master's thesis on St. Benedict. Benedictine monasticism. It was an interesting period. But I went off into the parish, and without the overlooking eyes of my professors, without the abbot of the monastery telling me repeatedly that I needed to fast and pray so that I may obtain or earn or gain my salvation. Yes, these are words that are used. Because in the Orthodox Church, that is how you get salvation. Salvation is called theosis. Divinization or deification. Their whole system of salvation comes from a single verse in 1 Peter. When they say, when Peter says that you are partakers of the divine nature. And that is taken to mean that you can become by grace what Jesus is by nature. And that even with your living, waking eyes, you can see the uncreated light of God as the apostles saw it on Mount Tabor. And not only can you see it, but you can show it. That the saints themselves can glow with the uncreated light of God. There was something about this that I couldn't particularly grasp onto. And when I asked how this was possible, how one could obtain salvation, how we gather salvation, we're told through ascetical endeavor. What does ascetical endeavor mean? Prayer, fasting, participation in the sacraments, going to confession. Because here's the thing. If penal substitutionary atonement is a heresy, and your own sins, your personal sins, are not dealt with on the cross of Christ, how are they dealt with? In the confessional, with your priest. When I became Orthodox, I had to make an appointment with my priest to give a life confession where I spent two and a half hours with him confessing every sin I could ever remember committing in my life. I had to do it again the night before I was ordained to the priesthood. This is the way that you are saved in the Orthodox Church. You are saved through ascetics. You are saved through prayer and fasting. In the Orthodox Church, they fast for more than half the year. And you don't have the option of what to fast from. They tell you meat, fish, wine, dairy, and oil. For the 40 days leading up to Christmas, the 40 days leading up to Easter, the two weeks of the Dormition fast in August, and the two weeks of the Apostles' fast in July. And then every Wednesday and Friday through the year. That is how you're saved. But here's the thing. There's a book written about that, about that system of salvation. That book is called Galatians. And Paul makes it very clear to us in Galatians and in Ephesians that that does not save you. 
And when I opened up my Bible again, after barely touching it for the four years I was in seminary, and I cleaned out my bookshelves as I was moving, and I found all of my old books by R.C. Sproul, and my CD series of J.I. Packer teaching on the English Puritans. And I read them again, and I listened to them again. I thought to myself, I think I made the wrong decision. I think I made the wrong decision. And I went home after wrestling with this for a long time, and I told my wife, "Hun, I think I'm leaning reformed again. I'm really struggling. And so the two of us took a year of our lives every day, and we combed through the entire New Testament line by line as a couple, beginning with Matthew 1 and going all the way to the end of Revelation. And at the end of it, we looked at one another, and my wife said, okay, where are we going? Because I realized that no matter how hard I tried, no matter how hard I struggled, no matter how much I prayed, no matter how much I confessed, no matter how much I fasted, which as you can tell, I don't, I'm not very good at, no matter how hard I struggled, I would never, ever get there. Ever. I was a priest standing at the altar and I told my wife on numerous occasions that I felt like a harlot standing at an altar proclaiming something I didn't believe would actually work. But here's the thing. I know I say that a lot. When I, like Luther, who became a great inspiration for me, read Romans chapter 1 and saw that the righteous will live by faith. And I heard the words of Dr. Sproul and I heard many others reminding me that no matter how hard I tried, I would never earn the favor of God. But that the good news was that I didn't have to. That Christ had won that favor for me. It was like the gates of heaven opened again. And when I walked away from the Orthodox Church, that was a process that was more difficult than I can possibly tell you. The stress of that caused me a great deal of physical toil and struggle. The stress of it caused me to not take care of myself. I ballooned up to 330 pounds. I've now lost a good portion of that, thank God, much less stress. But it took a, it took a toll on me, it took a toll on my family. And when a friend of mine here in town, who knew what I was going through, called me on the phone and said, hey, did you know that Trinity Church in Mason is looking for a pastor? I said, why no? 
I was not aware of that. And I thought, if this is God's will, then this is what we'll, we'll see what happens. I sent in my resume, and six months later, they called me. And I left the Orthodox Church. And to this day, of all the people that I have made friends with in the Orthodox Church over the years, more than a decade of my life, of all the people I went to church with, of all the people that I serve, of all the brother priests, of all the people that I went to seminary with, of all those people, do you know how many of them will have anything to do with me now that I've left the church? One. One. The deacon at the parish I served in eastern Pennsylvania. He's the only one that will still have anything to do with me. I still get messages every once in a while from people, people I don't even know. A few weeks back, I got a message from a Russian guy in, in uh, Alaska. Don't know who he is, never met him. All the message said was priests who leave the path are as welcome in the church as a dog. But you know what? I can endure that. Because as Martin Luther said, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, say to him, what of it? Because I admit that I deserve death and hell. But I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. Where he is, I will be also. And that's it. That's it. And so I will close with this. I have a few more minutes, a couple more minutes. But I will say to you, I've had so many people here in town and people online, people who've seen interviews I've done or heard them, seen things I've posted. They've contacted me and said, we've got people in our parish who have family that are converting to orthodoxy and we don't know what to say to them. What would you say to them? And this is not just local people. I don't want to name drop, but I was at a conference a few weeks back, and I had a tap on my shoulder, and when I turned around, Pastor Doug Wilson was standing behind me. Whether you, what you think about him is beside the point. But he was standing behind me and he said, I have a family in my parish whose son converted to orthodoxy and I have no idea what to tell them. Can I put them in touch with you? I said, of course. I have a phone conversation with that family this week. It goes all over, all over. And why? Largely, it is because we who are in the reformed camp have lost sight of the beauty of our tradition. We have lost sight of the beauty of the gospel. And we are so often, so daggone concerned with being right that we lose what is beautiful about our tradition. We become so concerned with the jot and the tittle that we lose the heart of the gospel we have been handed. 
We don't share with our youth that they have a tradition that is really the one that is apostolic. That the apostles taught salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And when we don't do that, when we don't share with them the beauty of the tradition of the worship of the Reformed tradition, that we come before the Lord who is pleased to receive our worship in simplicity and not with ornate, piled upon ornate, piled upon ornate. Or as looking back, I might say gaudy upon gaudy upon gaudy. We will lose our people. We will lose them if we do not share with them the beauty and the distinctiveness of the tradition that was given to us and that was revived these 500 years ago. And so, brothers and sisters, I plead with you. Teach your children how beautiful this tradition is. But more importantly, teach them that all they need to know for salvation and life is found right here. Right here. They don't need to find salvation in a hymn sung to Mary. They don't need to find it in a confessional booth with some monk, like I tried to do. But rather, it can be found in the one place that we know is the inspired and infallible word of the living God. It is the only way for sinners like me and you to be saved. I thank you guys for your time. God bless you. Good night.